All right, folks, uh, so what we're doing is a, we're calling it a reverse podcast. I don't know if that's the right term, but what we're doing is we are here with a, a group of about 20-odd students uh, that are here for the Urban Garden Design Workshop, many of whom are here for the earlier chicken, chicken killing uh, workshop. And uh, we're doing this kind of an open mic section, but what we're doing is it's not just me answering questions. It's anybody here can ask me any question they want. It does not have to be specific to permaculture or the workshop, anything to do with preparedness or anything you want to know about from business to, you know, petunias. I don't care. And if I don't know the answer or if somebody else has an extended answer, something else to it, it's not just me responding to the students, but other students, because we got a lot of wisdom in this room, uh, expanding on it. So it's kind of like a cool Zello chat, except there's no interruptions or falling technology or anything else like that. So who wants to go first? Raise your hand. Jake will bring the mic to you. Please say your name, at least your first name, uh, when you talk so people who hear this later know who you are. Hey, this is Dom from Cleveland. I had a question about getting the first pressure, my first pressure canner. I'm looking for something that has the weighted gauge, I believe. I don't want to have to retest the gauge every year, I think is what's recommended. I don't want to have to deal with that. And I think that's the All-American version they have. It's kind of pricey, so I'm wondering if there's a different option or if the All-American is really just the best option. I know that I don't think they have the rubber gasket seal, which seems like a plus as well. I just want to get opinions on that. Um, all I can say is you've answered your own question with All-American. If you look over there, there's my pressure canner sitting right underneath, and it's an All-American. And one of the huge reasons that's what I went with is because there's no rubber seal. And they're just a pain in the butt. And there's a lot of times when something's kind of pricey and it might be a little better and you go, is it worth it? To me, if it's something that like, once you have it, it lasts for the rest of your life, it's definitely worth it. And you know, I have one because my grandmother had one and I, I can't see ever replacing that. So it's what I'd buy, and I'd spend the extra money. We're very happy with it. Anybody here have a good pressure canner that's not an All-American that doesn't have a rubber seal? Well, I've got, a, I've got a Miro, and I like it. But Does it have a rubber seal, Jake? It does have a rubber seal. And I don't like rubber seals. One thing about the American canner, it can double as a Faraday cage because it is metal to metal, and you clamp that down. You can put, it's been tested to withstand high uh, EMP type. Well, I don't know if you'll ever use it for that, but double for that. I guess you could keep some of your small electronics in there when you're not pressure canning, but if you're pressure canning with them in there, they won't work anymore anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or or if, it, if, if the end of the world hits uh, in your pressure canning, you're, you're SOL. So the American that has the weighted gauge and the pressure gauge on it as well, I think, or is it just... Yeah, there's a pressure gauge, and then your weight gauge actually determines how much pressure. So the, the weight you're talking about doesn't tell you what the weight is. It controls the weight. Right. That's your, your, your thing. I don't know what you call it, right? And it, it, you can 10, 15 pounds, whatever you want. And most of your canning recipes for pressure canning, you're going to see are going to be like 15-pound you know, requirements. We don't do a ton of it, but we got another question here. Yes, Jake's canner Chris, Jake's canner has the rubber seal, but it's also tall enough to to um, to use quarter or quart containers, half, half gallon, actually half gallon containers. <coughs> Is it worth the um, the ability to have half gallon containers, but still the the, the uh, negative of having a rubber seal? Is well, if you wanted an all-American canner that could do half gallon jars, you can buy one. They make them that big, so. 
Um, well, my question is, do you really want to be canning half gallons? I don't personally, but I could see like a big family, it makes sense, you know, but um, ECR's there, it'll handle up the courts. Okay, uh, this is Charlie from Woodstock, and I have a raised garden bed that I have uh, some strawberries in, and I've had um, kind of an invasion of what appear to be wild strawberries. So they end up with uh, these really tiny berries, you can't eat them you know, or do anything with them. Uh, there are some of the regular strawberries mixed in there, and uh, just looking for some ideas on how to best rehab that. If you want to keep growing strawberries, I would probably pull everything you can out, lay down a heavy weed block, and replant it with new plants. I mean, they, they strawberries will produce first year. So if you want strawberries, I would, and you're having that problem, I would probably just replant. Anybody else got anything on that? And say who you are. This is Jeff from Texas. What I've done with strawberries basically is uh, I, I grow them in earth boxes mainly and um, there's two things I do with them. Um, if you want them to spread, stress them. So if you keep, if you just let them dry out a little bit, they'll start putting out their shoots and when they put out their shoots, I'll either let them get into the bed, grow out more. Any Anytime you see a flower, I pinch it off so that it puts its energy into spreading so you can grow it as a perennial. Um, otherwise, if you want fruit, let it flower, of course. Uh, but the other thing is, since I grow them in a basically a big box, an earth box, is that as they just keep drooping down the sides, I'll take more pots of soil, put them underneath the runners, they'll root in the pots, and then just move them to wherever you want to put them, and then you can actually treat them as trans. I've done that too. I call it capturing sisters, basically, right? You have the runners, and you just put little pots on them. Um, were you saying something, John? You gotta wait for the mic. It was kind of facetious. Uh, I guess you could try to cross pollinate and come up with a different variety. However, what he's saying, to follow up on that, um, you may be able to take what he's saying and disadvantage the wild ones by overplanting the ones you want. That is another way you could do it. If you didn't want to pull it up or whatever, just plant the heck out of it with, you know, uh, either gin bearing or ever bearing, depending on what you want. I was a real fan of the concept of ever bearing strawberries, but I've gotten better results from June bearing strawberries. And I found the June-bearing strawberries in Texas bear over a much longer period than just June. You start getting strawberries in like early May, and they'll bear out to July until it gets too hot, and then they, then they kind of crap out on you. But Quinn Alts works real good for me. Where, where are you from again? Atlanta. So you're from Atlanta, so you should do – Quinn Alt might be a really good berry for you. Okay. What was the name? Quinn Alt. Okay. Yeah. Anybody else? Anything not specifically strawberry related? <laughs> uh, this is Jerry from Kansas. I had a, a new question. Um, I got about 100 acres and um, was kind of curious, how do you go about picking a permaculture consultant? Uh, I, I've had some start and stops in the past and some folks that have certificates, but, um, you know, but not the experience. So where are you, where are you from? Kansas. Kansas, okay. So... I don't know anybody working in your area, so I can't give you anybody by name. My big thing that I would want to know from anybody that's going to come consult with me is what have you done, right? If you have your certificate, that's great, 
Well, you can practice on your mom and your dad and yourself and your brother-in-law and your cousin Cody. And then when you can show me what you did for them, especially on a project 100 acre size. On your size property, you're probably looking to do significant earthworks. I would probably look for someone that doesn't just have a permaculture certification, but has taken an earthworks course as well. I think that's going to be key with what you're doing on that size of a property. And part of it is I'd want to know, you know, what your goals are. Do you you want to do the whole property? And I know you don't have the mic, but you can just tell me and I'll tell you. You want to do the whole property or? I, I think I want to plan uh, you know, the whole So property. you want a master plan for the whole property, but a phase in thing. We've so got swales put in. So you've got swales put in. Go ahead and say that again into the mic. Um, basically, we've got to start on it. I mean, I've got, you know, swales already built. And again, we brought in bigger movers, you know, to, to do that. So have you taken a course? I, I took Jeff's online Recent course. one? You, you're probably as good as anybody you're going to get. You know, I, I, I called, you know, a few other folks, and then I actually paid guy that does the classes uh, you know in, in my area I'll tell you who you might talk to up your way actually is Bill Wilson I did call him as well and he's too busy, he's too busy. that's the good that's, that's the thing the good guys are busy I mean uh, definitely and you know you might even talk to Falk Ben Falk he might be willing to especially if you talk to him like your winners are bad but his are worse so there might be some of that transitional time that he could come down and maybe not do the work, but lay out the plan for you so you could then do the work yourself. And he might be up for that. Isn't there, isn't there a danger or uh, inherent, <coughs> an inherent friction of using yourself to do your own plan? Because you even said it was tough for you, right? I, I think that that's the case for your first design that it really is hard to make your first design your own property. But the way around that without spending any money is go design somebody else's property. That doesn't mean you do the work, just do the design. And maybe design, you know, if you have a church, just go, because they won't yell at you for standing in the middle of their field and looking around like you're clueless when you're really, you know, evaluating things. Design your church, even if they don't want you to do it, just design it on paper or in your head. And design as many properties as you can, because when it's not your property, you'll let go of all your concerns and worries and what ifs, and you'll, you'll open that creative mind. If, if the first property you design is your own, you'll come up with a hundred excuses why everything you know is right won't work. So go out and design, go out and design your neighbor's property. He doesn't have to know that's what you're doing. You know, if you can trick yourself into believing your property's not your own property, then you, you know, a hundred acres, you can get lost on your own property, right? So you can, uh, but I mean, what is, what is your biggest challenge right now? I think it's pasture. I mean, it's been pasture for 50 years, so. You're taking a Kansas prairie, basically. You have, um, you know, very, don't have a woodlot, for example. Um, I just, uh, we just built a brand new home, so I put in cover crop just to cover me this winter. So, yeah. You know, Is it flat? It's Kansas. I, no? I mean, where I'm at is rolling. It's rolling so hills. Exposure. It's, it's a beautiful place. I mean, um, it's just going ahead and doing the next steps. Water's an issue. That's why we put ponds and obviously for all the livestock. But uh, another question too, and I don't want to jump ahead, but 
Another question I had is, anyone had any experience using ponds and, and uh, for, for drinking water? So it's been hard even to talk to any experts in any of the filtering companies or UV companies. Nobody wants to touch that because there's so much risk with it. The, the problem of turning the ponds turning over a couple times a year and, and the issues that go on with that. So, but those are those are the, the goals. Is how do we how do we make it more diverse? Basically, it's a big open pasture. We've cross fenced. We've put in ponds. It's just taking it to the next step. I mean, if you want to forest it, swales are the way. If you want to diversify into a true diversified pasture, grazing is your answer. Just on a property that size, it's that's a lot of grazing. But you don't have to do it all at once. You could break it up and just take 10 acres and start paddock shifting 10 acres with your cattle. Don't graze them over the whole 100 acres. It's too much land for 30 cattle. Yeah, we've already cross-fenced, so we do rotational grazing now. Um, what, why I came to this workshop is because we're looking for zone one, you know. Yeah. That kind of you know what? There's a great thing for you to do right now. It, it, unless you have some big earthworks you want to get done that you know you want certain things done, for the next year, design your zone one. Don't even step one foot outside of your door and design that foot. And then step two more feet out and design that space. And do, you know, because an acre will wear you out. Right? So start with that first anchor. That's kind of it. So we're we, on the swells and stuff. We're we kind of we're running out of time in, in Kansas, but, um, you know, trying to, you know, put trees in and, and yeah. you know, food forest type stuff, but really I'm here just to try to help, you know, me gain a little bit more confidence in... Stay on Bill. On. Stay on Bill at Midwest uh, phone. He'll, he'll he'll have time sooner or later, especially as it gets colder. Maybe another option, too. I mean, if Bill Wilson is busy, maybe you could offer your education that you just learned as an internship to help him out. Maybe he'll swap out some planning for you. Maybe. Or some other knowledgeable... Okay, so following up, uh, this is Jeff from uh, Mesquite, Texas again. Following up with that question a little bit is um, what you were just talking about, designing just zone one, even though you have a 100-acre property or something. Um, do you run into a problem of concentrating so much on your zone one that it may have to be completely changed again when you start designing second parts to make it work together? Probably not because you're going to design that zone one to be intensively managed. And as soon as you step off to zone two, the management requirements go down. You step off to zone three and your broad acre crops, your management requirements go down again. You step off to zone four where you're in the farm forestry, your management requirements go down again. So you know straight from the beginning your zone one and what like we're doing today, we're doing in this week with urban, urban you might call it a zone one, zone two, but really it's all zone one when you're on an urban sized lot, right? So that's designed to be intensively managed. So it doesn't matter that you maybe decide to plant a certain guild or something out in your zone two. It's not going to change what your zone one's really going to be. Okay, so yes, it functions on its own. Even in fact, it'll actually light the fuse for what zone two needs to become because you will worry less about what you think you need because if you have a really well intensively managed fairly large 100 acres the zone one's probably an acre right now that acre can provide so much that it starts to loosen up what you really need out of the rest of your land so you design as you go out instead of designing out and coming in 
but it would be a good idea if you could get a master plan in place in advance because then you're designing with the end in mind, which is a, a, a very strong permaculture principle. Okay, I, I also have one other quick one, um, and I might be getting ahead of us for this weekend, but other than like a laser level pad and pencil, are there, is there a basic permaculture designer toolkit that you can come up with or recommend? That's different for everybody. I design with an excavator and a laser level. I, you know, I brought Nick in to teach this because I'm terrible at maps. My maps are bubble diagrams, which is the first step is gonna, Nick is going to teach you, which is like food forest, annual garden, and, and, and he'll get more precise with that, but that really is what we're here for. So. Uh, Tom from uh, Texas, uh, almost carrying that thought on, the permaculture, urban permaculture design, we'll start with that since that's what we're going to be doing this weekend. How much of this is a, the concept is a defined process where every property would have common step one, step two, step three, it's always going to be the same with every property. How much of it is unique? Some of it's going to be unique by the property owner, what they, what their goals are. But is there, is is urban culture, is it a plug and play, stamp out process? Certain things are common in every property. To kind of give you a, 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 a big jump when you go to design a property and put something in, uh, your property owner, your client sees some activity right away, very quickly. It looks very big and impressive, and then you're fine tuning after that. There is some things that would be consistent, but it would be consistent by thinking about human needs, right? So all humans existing will produce waste. So dealing with waste, right, and it might be a composting toilet if you're in a place where you can do that, but let's just take the, that level of waste off the table. We produce scraps and waste all the time. So we have to have a way to manage the waste. But as soon as you get to that part, it starts to bifurcate, right? Because, okay, if I can have chickens, they become a huge portion of my waste cycle, re, you know, recycling. If I can't, then I'm going to look more to worms and composting. So we always know we're going to have a waste component, and we want to turn the waste into something beneficial to the property. So that's going to be consistent on every property. Every property, we're going to need to think about how do we make sure the plants get enough water. Well, if I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, I don't have a real big problem to make sure that happens. If I'm in Dallas, Texas, I have a problem that I have to make sure gets covered. If I'm in, you know, uh, Lubbock, Texas, I have a real problem that I got to get done. If I'm in Denver, Colorado, I have just as low a rainfall, but a much lower evaporation coefficient. So my solution for that irrigation component is going to be different in every property based on region, size, plant type but I know I need water, right? I'm gonna look at, so, you know, when Joe, Jeff Lawton talks about evaluating property, we go, you know, water, access, structure are three huge things we wanna evaluate. Well, even a small urban property, right there, we're looking at water. Access, we don't think about with a suburban property or an urban property because you pull in your little driveway and you're there. But access is also clearly defined paths. Those paths start to lay out the flow of the design. On a small property, as you'll see here when we do this, those paths can actually become part of the water 
because as I was explaining earlier outside, you can use the pass to pacify and dissipate the water into the property. The structure or the building is gonna be consistent that we're gonna concern ourselves with energy usage in there. So there's all these principles that are absolutely the same, but every design's gonna be different. And I would love us to get to a template where we can say, if you're in Dallas, Texas, here's five guilds that we know work. And you can just plug that guild into your property. And I think we're starting to get there. I think there's a lot of people with that goal, but it's gonna take a lot more people doing a lot more research to get to a point where we can actually have that, if that makes sense. That's a long roundabout answer, but I mean, it's the same but different is the real answer. So are you saying then that food would probably be the last on the list to consider after waste, water management, access? No, I think there's some things that are pretty close to the same priority, but if I'm dealing with recycling my nutrient, I'm dealing with my irrigation, I'm managing my structure, and I'm doing this all through plantings, well, I know food is gonna be a result of that, right? So um, the big thing with the food is determining how long you're willing to take to start produ production, right? And how much you wanna put into perennials versus annuals and what the people that are on the property like to eat. I mean, if you're in Georgia, you can grow tomatoes until they come out of your ears, but if the family hates tomatoes, it doesn't really matter. So that's when you start getting down. So I know I'm gonna plant something here, right? But now I'm gonna get down the personal taste of the, of the establishment, so to speak, when I make that decision. And it's not as a, it's the, so he was asking about a constant. So that's not as much a constant as I know I have to irrigate. So I wasn't really answering it from a priorities, but what are the things that are consistent across the board? Yeah, and if you do those things, then it may lead you to something that you think is the most important, like a food force. But once you lay out a structure, lay out access and water management, I, I know a pond should really go here. Then it can dictate where you should put swells and things, and they, I mean, a hedgerows or fedge. Fedges, Correct. That yep. Sort of thing. Yep. Anybody else? This is Jesse Tegmeyer from uh, Pensacola. Um, I got about a year to retire from the Marine Corps, and uh, I've been trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up for the last 19 years. <laughs> uh, I'm considering uh, possibly trying to go into a permaculture design uh, business. And I heard uh, podcasts talking with uh, Nick about a uh, possible business. Uh, just looking for advice uh, on a possible business, uh, using permaculture and, and either being a designer or putting on courses. Um, just looking to see if there might be some advice on moving into that. And uh, considering that I have a year left and I'd like to get something started within a year. Yeah. Um, there's, there, there's, I think, two markets for permaculture. And one is a pretty small market that everybody's competing for, and that's all the people that know what permaculture is. So that's the market that you do take when you can find it, and you do advertise to and say, I'm a permaculturist, and we do courses, and we do design, and we do consultation. But that needs to be like just this little piece of business that you, you know, kind of farm and hope you can grow into something over time, especially as the entire market itself gets bigger and bigger, which is happening. And permaculture back when, I mean, you know, it first started to catch fire in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, people that were involved thought it was just going to explode and become a massive, you know, fast. 
Today, they're finally seeing what they expected to happen back then, so that's coming. But the mass market that everybody in permaculture ignores is all the people that would love a beautiful backyard with lots of food in it. And I wouldn't even use the word because when you're marketing and selling to a clientele, never use a word they don't know. Okay, never use a word they don't understand unless it's a wake up word. So I might throw a word at you once we're engaged that you don't know, so you'll ask me a question because now I can continue the process. But in my fishing, right, so a striped bass might really like a piece of ribeye steak if he tried it, but he doesn't know what it is. So I'm not going to put it on my hook and throw it out there waiting for a striped bass. I'm going to give him like a slice of mackerel because he knows what that is and he's willing to eat it. So when I'm looking to build that mass market, I would use words more like edible landscaping. Um, I would use words like sustainability consulting, right? And I would market to words that people already know. And if I happen to get an opportunity to sit down and present to somebody and start talking about what they want, if they go, oh, is this permaculture? Absolutely. If they never use the word, it's not important to me that they know the word. The other thing, and I don't think it's as important in this group as other permaculture groups that I've had to talk to before, but if you're trying to sell somebody something as awesome as permaculture and you're leading off with not everybody can have a big vehicle and a large screen TV, they're gonna start tuning you out because you're trying to sell the soccer moms that drive SUVs to soccer games. And, and we need to not worry about that soccer mom driving that SUV. We need to worry about what she's feeding her children. And I think that the best presentation I could make to a homeowner that says, well, what will you do that's different is using the ethics as a sales presentation. We're going to come in and evaluate your property and determine how to make your property serve you as best as possible. But we're going to follow some certain rules when we do that. Number one, we're going to make sure nothing we put on your property harms you, harms your pets, harms your children, or harms your neighbors. Right? So that's care of people. That's just a different way of explaining it. We're also going to make something sure that nothing we do has any detrimental effect on your property or your neighbor's property. So that's care of the earth. And we're going to do that in such a way that with minimal effort, it's going to produce an abundance of clean, healthy, fresh food for your family. And everything it produces will be able to go back into the property and make it even better next year. That's return of surplus, right? And I think if you sit down with a homeowner and explain just that, You've opened the mind up to, well, at least I want to know how this works. And this is basic sales. And, and sales is not the cutthroat business that people that don't know sales think it is. Sales is simply a transfer of belief. For me to transfer what I believe to you, I have to first open you up so that you're willing to receive, right? So I have to open you up to that concept and make you at least say, well, is that possible? Well, now that I know that's possible, since I'm full of belief, I can transfer it. If, if a good salesperson cannot sell something they don't believe in, it's impossible. They can't sell something just because it'll make them a big commission. That's a con artist. A true salesperson concerns themselves with, with the person on the other side of the table, and I want to make sure I sell you what you need. Well, with permaculture, I know you need it. Now, maybe you don't need it to the level that I want to do it, so it's my job now to figure out how far do you want to go, and take you that far. And I think that approach is what's missing from the business side of permaculture. And when I say that, I don't mean the farming side, like the guy that wants 100 acres and I'm gonna have a Mark Shepard style thing. The person who wants to be a consultant, who wants to go in and help people do that. That approach, because we've made profit a dirty word in permaculture, like it's a bad thing. And then everybody that runs around is really good at it, talks about how they're broke all the time.
And you say, what kind of business did you set up? They say, oh, a nonprofit. Okay, so you're subject to the government not to make any profit. You've got additional rules and regulations. You're trying to pay your bills. Yeah. Okay, there's your problem. Because it's like, I don't want to be anything but a nonprofit. And a company pays a tax based on making a profit, and a nonprofit still makes money. They just pay it all out as wages to their employees and have no net profit. I don't even understand why anybody would do a nonprofit personally, because if I want my corporation to be a nonprofit, I'll just pay myself all the surplus, and my corporation won't pay any taxes anyway, and I'm always going to pay the tax on the money I receive. So I don't even get why anybody puts themselves into that situation. Here's a follow-up uh, as far as positioning for him, and this is Jake from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, also known as Prepper Survivor on Zello. Plus Zello. Um, he could maybe, instead of going branching out on his own, maybe uh, look for a lawn care company or landscaping company that you could joint venture with, offer them a value-added service, and maybe they would provide you with you know, leads, if, for lack of a better word, in order to... Um, introduce you and you bring value to their company and you're not having to start from scratch you can start it part-time even was it jake was it you yesterday that said that somebody came to you pitching like true green camelon or something like that yeah right yeah. and you said basically you wanted not to ever mow your grass or whatever now imagine if the guy that got to the door and knocked on the door met him and he said you know i don't want anything to do with any of your chemicals or whatever and that guy had said you know what I've got this guy that you should talk to. Oh, we have a program. We have a program for people like you. Tell me what you're really looking for out of your yard instead of you don't want to mow it. And Jake says, oh, I want food and I want this and I want that. And Oh, I got this guy. That's exactly what he does. Would you like to speak to him? Right? If he does that t 10 times a week for you and you get one appointment off of that, you probably have more work than you can handle. It may be a free consultation. You know, or free evaluation up front. And the nice thing is, you'll be a retired member of the U.S. military. You have enough survival income, right, to be able to take some time to build it up. Because the biggest thing that kills a business is a person feeling like if I don't make it in the next six months, I'm under. Right? You start getting stupid and making bad decisions and taking work you shouldn't take and underbidding jobs and things like that. Where when you know I'll be fine a year from now, if this doesn't work, I'll do something else you're relaxed and as long as you stay motivated enough to attack the business but stay relaxed enough to do the business smart you usually succeed in that that mindset hold on wait for the mic so you could basically sell a maintenance service with it as well um, and that's instead of necessarily uh, relying on new customers you could have customers that you go back and check the progress of what you started and you got a choice you can either train your customer so that you're obsolete and therefore you perpetuate the ideals of permaculture or you can create a customer base that continues to uh, bring money back to you as, as you're um, as you're selling some services and, and partnering partnering with a landscaping company could be that maintenance option yeah, just a follow-up to that, um, Don from Cleveland again. So that idea is actually exactly what I was planning on doing. I, I started a landscaping company with my buddy back in high school, I think, and he's actually still doing it. And so we've already been talking about it. The question I had is, I've been having a hard time deciding what permaculture is to people who aren't 
we don't know what it is. You said edible <laughs> landscaping. Edible landscaping. Yes. Yeah. Is, is that? Does anyone have another suggestion for that? I think that's a great term, but I was just hold on, hold on. All right. Tom, again, an example of what you were saying. Make it simple. Marjorie's grow your own groceries. That's a pretty simple definition of what you're doing. You know, the principles may be different, but that's something that the common guy, woman, can grab. You know, that your 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 customer is. Who are the people that really are interested in this kind of stuff and eating this way? We, we all have local farmer's markets. These people come and just clear out farmer's markets every weekend. Those are the folks that you want to do this for in their home environment. And, and you want to set up a booth at a farmer's yeah. market. I mean, you know, I think that one of the big things that is missing in the marketing message that would hit the soccer mom demographic hard is the health of your children improving the health of your children. I would use bullet points and words like that. So improving your children's health, improving your family's health, the best food better than you can buy anywhere at any price, right? I mean, because it is. And it's not just that, and this is what makes it that. If I grow an awesome cantaloupe in a polyculture that's full of nutrients, and a farmer grows one just as good 20 miles away, goes in a truck, gets here, sits at the co-op, even at that point, that food is degraded in quality, even though it's still great food, it's degraded in quality compared to, I've just slipped it off the vine and I'm eating it now. And well, the price difference is, is, is a huge thing. This is Jeff from Mesquite. One phrase that, um, I don't know if I actually have the phrase, but something that speaks, like you were just saying, um, the feeding your children better, making your children healthier speaks to the female half of the family. Usually what will speak to the male is more of the make your land work for you. Get your yard to pay you back. You dump all this money and time into it and mowing it and chemicals and whatever else. Well, why not get it to pay you back in reducing your grocery bill? I think what hits both homeowners then is also increased property value. So that that's a huge thing. You know, to, to be able to sit down with homeowners and say, look, People that do this, generally it never comes up because they don't want to leave. But when they do, they can sell their house in just about any market because it's completely different from everything else that's available. And it, and it really is. But the, the records kind of show that people that take a property to that kind of level, they don't leave. I mean, I know when we left Arkansas, we wanted to come back here and all. But looking at what we had done in just two years, it was very hard to walk away from that property. And come and start, you know, in a rock hole like this and start over, man. And we have so much more in some ways, but we're so behind in some other ways. But, I mean, I basically said, this place here, I'll die here. You know, either that or if I let me, if it's a bug out or something, it's different. But, I mean, I don't have any plans to move. And if I do, but I can't give her away or sell, I'm going to burn because I don't. Moving as a prepper is so much different than moving as a normal human being when you start to realize how much you've actually put away. Um, anyway, guys, I think we're pretty close to dinner. I think this was cool. Maybe we'll do this again tomorrow. And what would be cool is to do this tomorrow with Nick. Um, yeah. He'll have a different take than I will. And then we'll actually have two podcasts come out of this. And I'll can have ask, podcasts this week. Can I ask you one last question? Yes. Can you, this, I know you don't talk about it, but I'm asking you this. Can you give us an update on Permal Ethos? Yeah. Um, I just talked to Xavier Hawk, who, of course, has turned his property into an eco-village and kind of tuned me into the concept of doing it with a long-term lease. 
and we're going to have a conference on Monday and basically I'm going to appoint him as a project manager for the project to uh, start interviewing people, talking to people, things like that. We have a massive list of potential investors, over 90. 90 potential investors with a minimum investment of 25,000, 150 plus potential leasees. Most of which willing to go a little higher than we talked about in numbers if they have to. So we have, we have absolutely the revenue to do this. The key is going to be doing it in a way that takes care of everybody and is a good shepherd of everybody's money. And I'm just out of mental bandwidth at this point with everything that I do. And I need somebody with experience to start running some conference calls. If you are a potential investor and we do a first series of conference calls and you're not directly invited, it's because we cannot have 100 people on a conference call. And I mean, Xavier might tell me something different. He's done it before, so I'll defer to him. That's why I'm bringing him in. But my theory is the first people we would want to have is we have people that are professional real estate developers and we have lawyers in the state of Texas that want to be investors. Now, they're the first group of people I want together because they know the legal structure, how we can set up the property, and the real estate investors know how to develop a property and what comes with that and those things. And that at least starts to lay the groundwork. And I mean, we honestly have enough horsepower already that I, I want to do one first, but as soon as we get it keyed up and going, we could go to multiple properties really fast. The interest is out of the world, man, how much interest there is. Um, on, the, on, the, on the website, which is, what's the website? Permaethos.com. Uh, just being on that and just being in the forum there, I've already been contacted by two other people that live in my state, Tennessee, who both said, this is something I've been thinking about doing. This has really helped me jail. So, you know, I'm looking at it. Yeah, yeah, and I think Tennessee would be a great place for one. Joe, of course, wants one in Montana, and <laughs> Mr. Pensacola wants one in Florida. And, I mean, everybody always wants one where they're at. But I, I think this, this idea, it, the beauty of Permaethos with their lease model is it's not like a homeowner association but there's a constant revenue stream so that makes the community viable but it's small enough that each participant doesn't feel like I can't afford this right and, and you get access to something you could never afford for that price even if the price has to be a little more it's still less than you could ever gain access to you can buy an acre for less over time sure but the concept of 30 or 40 or 50 acres of common acreage with additional revenue models that are paid out as shares into the community, I think it's cool. But anyway, I do think we need to wrap. I got to get food in for you guys. And, and uh, this has been awesome. Uh, I want to thank everybody for participating in this. And we'll do definitely another one with Nick. Let's raise the roof. Woo! Woo! Woo!